Well, today I'm going to give you a podcast that uh, I really just stumbled into. I was um, on a phone call with a man named Uma Valetti, a cardiologist who is now running a company called Memphis Meats. And he is trying to bring to market uh, what he calls cultured meat. This is meat that is synthesized from cells of cows or pigs or any other common food animal, but is uh, grown by processes that do not entail whole animals to be born and to live and die under the terrible conditions of factory farming or any other conditions. This is meat grown outside the usual biological process of being attached to a full animal. So it entails none of the animal suffering, or as you'll hear, the other environmental and health-related concerns of uh, factory farming. So in any case, I was on the phone with Uma, and the moment we got into the conversation, I realized this is something that you guys should know more about. And so I just converted a phone call into a podcast, and that's how I'm bringing you now, Uma Valetti, cardiologist turned entrepreneur and food producer. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with Uma Valetti, the CEO and co-founder of Memphis Meats. And um, as many of you know, I've been, been interested in vegetarianism and veganism and the, the ethics of factory farming. And I stumbled into an interest in the emerging possibility of synthesized meat. And Uma is now uh, running what um, appears to be the most prominent effort in this area. So Uma, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sam. I'm delighted to be here. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this and your background. You and I just got thrown together on Twitter. Maybe I should get into how we come to be talking to one another. I saw a tweet from the philosopher Peter Singer, who, as many people know, is a, um, a very outspoken defender of the rights of, of uh, non-human animals and has been probably more influential than anyone in philosophy to sensitize people to the, the ethical problem of what we eat and how we get food to our table. And so he sent out a tweet that contained a link to a Wall Street Journal article about your company, Memphis Meats. And so that's how I heard about you. And, and, and I was inspired on the basis of reading that article to put out a poll on Twitter asking people that if synthesized meat was molecularly identical to natural meat, to, to beef and pork and the other meats we eat, and it tasted the same, would you switch to eating it? And the results of that poll were something like 85% said they would switch. And then I asked uh, you know, those who said no, the reasons why, and, and, and the, the reasons why were pretty encouraging. Some said they were already vegetarian. About a quarter said they were already vegetarian and therefore weren't interested. So that's obviously not the market uh, you're, you're worried about. Uh, and then we'll get into the, the, the reasons why people are, are worried about synthetic meat. But Let's get into your background and tell us uh, what you hope to accomplish. Sure. Sam, first of all, I want to thank you for the random sequence of events that, that led us to talk to each other. And I want to thank Peter Singer for tweeting out our Wall Street Journal article that came out on Monday last week. And since then, it's absolutely been a global response that has inspired us and delighted us that, that there's a large group of people in the world waiting for a really good meat product that they could get behind and feel good about it. And, and you know, having said that, to give a little bit of my background, um, I grew up in, a, in India in a family 
that ate meat and I really enjoyed eating meat. And uh, I think I had a series of experiences since, uh, you know, from I was a 12-year-old or five years until I was 17. And uh, essentially, the first one was when I was 12. Um, I went to my neighbor, who was, who was a you know, good friend of mine, for his birthday party. And in the front of the house, there was a, you know, well-organized party, people gathering, dancing, eating. Uh, you know, there was lots of meat out there. And, you know, singing happy birthday. And I just happened to walk to the back of uh, his house. And that's where they were slaughtering the, the animals that were becoming meat in the front. And, and to me, it was one of the stark images I remembered mm. in my head. that There was a birthday and then there was a, there was a death day all in the same, you know, span of time. And it kind of disturbed me, but, you know, I did like the taste of meat and I continued to eat meat um, growing up into my teenage years. Where were you in India? Uh, in, in South India, in a place uh, called Vijayawada in Andhra Pradesh. Mm. And, and your, your family was uh, or is a Muslim or Christian or what, what's your background? So my, my grandfather was a freedom fighter, worked uh, with Gandhi, and our, I come from a Hindu family. Oh, so, you, but you, so you're not eating beef, I presume. Right. I never ate beef growing up, but there was all other types of meat, chicken, right. lamb, shrimp, fish. Um, but... Um, Beef was not part of our, you know, daily menu. But uh, as I went to medical school after that, I went to medical school in South India in a place called Pondicherry. And yeah. the ins- institution was called Jipmer. And it was a, a group of 50 students that were selected from the 25 states. Approximately about two kids per state were selected to get into this uh, All India Institute. And uh, we had to run our own cafeteria. It was all a student body-led uh, medical school for operations. And uh, I was in charge of the cafeteria for three months. And um, I worked with lots of chefs and kind of made the cafeteria very popular because we served the best uh, food out there. But I also went to the market to procure a lot of meats. And uh, I actually saw large-scale animal slaughter. And I was disturbed by, you know, a couple of things. One is the inefficiency with which, you know, we were converting all the vegetables and grains into a small amount of meat. But what bothered me was the way it was done. And uh, I told myself on that day that if there is a major problem in the world I'd love to solve, this would be right up there at the top. And it continued along on medical science, and uh, I became uh, a vegetarian in medical school, but really missed the taste of meat and really struggled to stay a vegetarian. And subsequent to that, I came to the U.S. I uh, wanted to train at the Mayo Clinic. So I ended up doing cardiology and interventional cardiology and advanced imaging. And during that process, um, I really got interested in understanding muscle and how muscle regenerates from a heart perspective. And I was treating patients that had cardiac arrests or heart attacks, and I was doing procedures on them and injecting stem cells into their hearts and watching that muscle regenerate. And and that kind of led to a thought of why can't we do the same process and, and develop a method to grow meat. And it was a very out-of-the-box idea. And as I started talking to people about it, you know, I got very curious uh, eyebrows, you know, lifting and saying, yeah, that's, that's interesting. But uh, no one really gave it much of a serious thought. And uh, I started searching on the internet and came across this organization called New Harvest, which was founded by a, you know, brilliant, you know, thinker, philosopher named Jason Matheny in 2005. Mm. just about the time when I graduated from cardiology at the Mayo Clinic. And I wrote to Jason and said, Jason, I really think this is something we should explore. And uh, I used to go to Washington, D.C. on a regular basis back then. And I I met Jason and he asked me to be on the board of New Harvest. And after serving on the board of New Harvest for three years, 
one thing that was abundantly clear to me was that there was a significant amount of interest globally, not just in the U.S., in places you would traditionally call progressive, maybe uh, you know, a few cities on the coast, but globally, people were asking, could we do this better? Could we do a more sustainable meat production uh, uh, methods or techniques? And uh, there were academics writing, there were investors writing, and just general public who were interested in, in this concept. And uh, at, at that point, honestly, I never thought I would start a company myself. I was just trying to encourage academics or others to kind of start ventures in this area. And it was very you know, enlightening for me because while there was a lot of interest among people, there was nobody willing to take the step and say, yes, I'm going to dedicate my career to make this a reality. There were a number of experts in tissue engineering, in academic labs, who had you know, phenomenal grants to do medical research. But for them to shift their career focus and also their lab's focus into a totally new field, which mm-hmm. did not have any federal funding or NIH funding, was a big risk. And essentially, academics are also running their own business because they have to run their labs, pay salaries to their PhDs who came believing in them. Right. And it was a huge risk for them to shift their priorities. And uh, that's when I decided that, look, I've been thinking about this since I was 12. I have a phenomenal career. I've uh, been building in cardiology, but there are 35,000 cardiologists out there in the U.S. And uh, I decided that I'm going to assemble a team myself and start a venture. And, you know, I interviewed a number of PhDs who had deep experience in skeletal muscle biology and found my co-founder, whose name is Nick Genovese, who also has been on the same mission for the last 15 years. And we teamed up together and we said, let's put an idea to the venture capital group in San Francisco. And if there is interest in the private sector, that is where we should be. Because we can motivate people to really help us solve this problem. And uh, it's been a surreal experience in the last six months. We wrote to this venture capital group called SOS Ventures. And within an hour of our application, they were on the phone saying, we want you to move down here. And we believe in this idea. And since then, it's been um, a wave of interest from all kinds of people, meat eaters who love eating meat, and some who love the taste of meat, but still had some some guilt eating it. And then from vegetarians and vegans who mm-hmm. were thinking if we should redefine the definition of what a vegetarian or vegan is, if this meat comes from not slaughtering an animal. It's well, been a you know long answer for you, but I did want to walk you through the process. No, it's great. It's great to know um, how you came to this. This is such a pain point, and it's, it's a pain point that I think um, many people are, are just reluctant to acknowledge given their attachment to and, and perceived dependence on eating meat. I'm now rather famously one of these people who stumbled into a kind of self-intervention on my own podcast where I was talking to the, the psychologist Paul Bloom, and we each put on our short list of things that uh, our future descendants would be scandalized by. You know, As we are scandalized by the, the slaveholders in our recent past, we, we both said that our descendants will be horrified to know what we did with factory farming, the way we mistreated and killed billions of animals in a way that um, we managed to do more or less with a clear conscience simply because we were keeping the details out of sight and out of mind. And you know, as just in that podcast, I, I more or less confessed my hypocrisy. I, I realized that, that I, I found the details morally indefensible, and I found it a kind of a starkly unethical area of my life 
around which I wasn't really paying much of a psychological cost because, again, I wasn't thinking about it. You know, I was just, you know, food was magically arriving on my plate every meal. And I was, you know, obviously I'm not an idiot. I know, I know what the details are, but I managed to not pay attention to them. And, and many, many millions of people, I, I would argue most people, are accomplishing the same psychological experiment in their own lives. And if they were forced to meditate on the details, both the ethical details and just the economic and environmental issues, which perhaps we'll go into, um, I mean, even if, even if you're totally sanguine about killing animals and giving them miserable lives up until the moment of their deaths, it seems to me that very few people can be sanguine about the environmental and health and economic implications of, of what factory farming is doing to our world. So it doesn't surprise me at all that there is or, or will be a huge market for this if you can accomplish your aim. So, t so let's talk a little bit about just what is entailed. W what are the roadblocks between where you are now and, and what you would hope to accomplish? Yes. Yeah, so l let me explain to you the process where, in a very high level. What we're doing is instead of growing a full animal, over 12 to 24 months, and then slaughtering it and just taking the meat we like and throwing away the bones and the skin and the hair, what we're doing is we're growing the same meat from the fundamental building blocks of life, which are the meat cells. So we identify the best meat cells possible from whether it's a cow or a pig, let's say from a pork shoulder or a top sirloin. And from these cells, we identify those that are capable of self-renewing themselves, and we cultivate them in a very safe and clean environment so that they can grow just like a small plant grows into a larger plant using nutrients, amino acids, peptides, minerals, vitamins, oxygen, sugars. And once we get the meat to a consistency that we like for the product, we harvest the meat. And if we harvest the meat early on in the process of, of, of growing the meat, then it's more like tender cuts of meat. And if we wait a little bit longer, it's more texturized. So that's a very high-level picture of what we're trying to do. And we feel pretty confident that the science has been worked out in our minds and in our experiments so far, as well as the prototypes we've been able to make. And, and as you know from the Wall Street Journal article, we've completely grown, cooked, and tasted meatballs as well as fajitas. Mm -hmm. And that was a watershed moment in, the, in our company's life because... While we knew we could do it, we just did not know how it was going to taste. And once we put that in our mouths and also some of the investors and tasters, it was abundantly clear within a few seconds that it had a very distinct meat flavor that I completely forgot about for the last several years because I was eating meat analogs, whether they were made from plant proteins or texturized vegetable protein. And, and that was a watershed moment. And we knew, okay, good, we've got the taste issues solved. And we have to continue to work on the types of products, texture, formulations. So to come back to your original question, what are our hurdles? I think the biggest hurdle for us to get to market as fast as possible is funding and the rate at which we could raise funding. Then the second one is the ability to scale up to a level where we can manufacture this in large quantities and basically align or integrate with the current distribution systems. Because what we're trying to do is to make the upstream processing that's you know, really filthy or not very clean or inhumane be replaced by this new system of growing meat. But we can still continue to use all the distribution, you know, meat, meat distribution, meat formulation, packaging, 
consumer packaging goods and uh, the, the usual route that current meat industry uses. And the third hurdle I would say is perceptions. And this is where your poll and our coincidence of our paths really helped because that 15,000 uh, members that you polled, about 83% of them who said they'll absolutely switch, and a few other polls we've seen so far tell us that perception may not be such a big hurdle, but I'm sure we will have some issues with that where we have to explain why our meat is just as natural as in fact more natural than what we're eating now because we are growing it in safe, clean environments using natural substances. So for example, there are, there are no antibiotics, there are no contaminants. And I would say this, and maybe other people would also agree with me that there is nothing natural about the conventional meats we are eating now because the chickens that we eat now grow six to seven times faster than what they would in the natural environment. The cows give about 10 times more milk than what they would naturally give. And the turkeys are so top-heavy that they can't even stand up to breed. And there is nothing natural about that. That's just the state of how modified genetically or uh, environmentally they've been by the current meat production techniques. And to top that off, because they're grown in such intense confined conditions, let's say a thousand pigs in a small barn that's filled with feces or waste material, they have to pump these animals with antibiotics, mm. which leads to antibiotic resistance and superbugs, and also sets up the stage for really bad zoonotic diseases like the bird flu or the swine flu we hear about every year. Now, none of that is there in our process. So I would argue, instead of calling this synthesized meat or synthetic meat, this is more a naturally cultured meat mm. because we're letting these cells grow naturally and providing them with a naturally safe environment. And I think our work, and I'm hoping lots of other people follow us, is going to define a new kind of agriculture that will change the way we approach food in the future. I want to get on to the perception issue because I think, it's, I think that's a fascinating one. And, I, and the, the response to, to the poll was, um, I think, very useful there. But, but I don't want people to ignore the very condensed litany of um, concerns, uh, health concerns mostly, that you just went through because, and you know, we don't have to get into it at length, but when you talked about the level of antibiotic use or the emerging epidemics and even, you know, feared pandemics based on our proximity to livestock and the mingling of livestock, for instance, you've got these, you know, open-air poultry markets in Asia where, you know, wild waterfowl drop their droppings or even are caught and sold in, in confinement with chickens. I mean, this is the reservoir of bird flu and uh, all of uh, the subsequent mutations in these viruses that um, you know, we are wisely worried about, which would very, very likely kill, in the worst case, hundreds of millions of people if we had a proper pandemic analogous to the flu of 1918. That's just one reason why uh, living in proximity to livestock for the indefinite future is a problem. But then you talk about pumping these animals that we eat with antibiotics because of how unhealthy they are and are living in confinement. It's to, it, the reasons to get out of this business are just manifold. And so when, now you're, you're taking us to a new reality where you could grow cells that are really picked for their health and aesthetic properties, never associated with a living animal that can suffer and die. And these cells can be the basis for various formulations of what is, in fact, 
at the molecular level, real beef or real pork, every bit as real as it would be from a living animal. Before we get into the perception issue, I just want to talk a little bit more about the underlying science. Is there any way in which this is risks being a false promise in terms of the reality of what, in fact, you are culturing? Tell me how this can go wrong, how you can be confused about the molecular identity between the beef cells you think you're culturing and what, in fact, you're producing. Pull back the lid on the vat that you are using to uh, culture these cells. Of course, yes. So I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of what we've done so far, what we've seen. And of course, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But when we take these meat cells, they have a very defined, what we call a phenotype which means when we put them under a microscope and we observe them and we compare them with the same types of cells from a slaughtered animal, for example, we can pick it up from an organic store and look at it under a microscope. They look identical. They have the same features that you would expect in the, in the meat, like multinucleated muscle fibers that contract in a basal state and also contract when we stimulate them, identical to how a meat from a slaughtered animal would do. And when we continue to grow them, they keep behaving just like what muscle cells and muscle fibers do. They try to come and join each other, form larger and larger and larger bundles. And as they mature, they try to exercise and they become thicker and do all the same things what normal muscle would do. As we start putting them together into food and creating the the meat, let's say a small block of meat, and put it on a pan, they behave identical to how meat would sizzle, it would brown, it would smell as we do this. And then finally, the taste test. So we feel from what we've seen so far, it is identical to meat. And the difference is the following. Our meat is a lot more protein-packed and lean than what you would get from a cut of meat from the supermarket because there is a large amount of saturated fats that are also there in that cut of meat. And in terms of making our meat safer and healthier, here is one big advantage. We can control how much fat we can put in there, as well as what types of fat and lower the amounts of cholesterol or saturated fat, but increase the types of fats that are beneficial for heart health, for example, omega-3 fats. So I think from that perspective, we feel like there's a lot more uh, flexibility we will have than growing a full cow and trying to modify how that meat could be more healthier for humans. So I hope I answered your question. Yeah, so I think it might be useful to just go to the second poll I ran of the people who said no at this point, because so as you said, 83% said yes, they would switch. But so that the reasons why people said no, I, Twitter limits you to four answers here. So I have, um, uh, it's just creepy. It might not be safe. It will be expensive. I'm a vegetarian slash vegan. So those were the four reasons, and they were evenly split, more or less. It was more or less a quarter for each. Let's save it's just creepy until the end, because I really think that is the most interesting and important hurdle to get over. But I, So we're, we're, we've begun to talk about the second one, the safety issue, in terms of are you going to be eating what, in fact, you think you're eating? And um, it's pretty clear that given that you can control the additives and you, you can decide whether you need to put antibiotics in there or not, and the, the rationale for doing so presumably would be vastly diminished in the case of cultured meat as opposed to animals living in overcrowded and unhealthy conditions. Are there any other safety variables here you need to consider? You're, you're, you're working presumably in an uh, antiseptic environment. 
this is functioning like a science experiment, which you then have to bring to scale. Talk about the safety issues a bit. Yes. So we've touched the safety issues in terms of the need for antibiotics, which we won't have. We also touched on the safety issues related to not having intense animal operations that can set the stage for diseases like bird flu. We've also touched on how the meat can be a lot more healthier from a, let's say, for example, a heart health perspective by using beneficial fats. Uh, One of the things we haven't uh, touched on is that when we detach meat production from the slaughter of an animal, there is another big safety issue that our audience need to know, which is whether your meat that you buy from the grocery store now is grown in like an intense animal operation or if it's a free-range grass-fed cattle on the best pastures in the world, at the time of slaughter, there is contamination of the meat from fecal material or from the guts. And that's a huge safety issue because most of the deaths from foodborne illness in the U.S. are related to contamination of meat. And that won't be there in our case because we are detaching the slaughter from the meat production. Now, what I can't guarantee and no food, no food manufacturer can is if you leave this meat out after you buy it from a grocery store and just leave it out for a while, then the chances of it getting contaminated or bacteria growing in it are a lot less than conventional meat because intrinsically the meat doesn't have bacteria. But I could see that the meat, if it's left open, can be spoiled and someone eats it, then they could get sick. And that's one of the safety issues we're going to have to be open to for any food. In terms of the factory itself where we produce this, it's, uh, it's going to have multiple points of testing to be sure that there is no uh, additives or contaminants that are getting into this process. And because we're going to be automating a lot of this and also including technologies such as robotics and, and machine learning, there will be probes along the way that are going to measure for the health of these cells, the amount of glucose that's in the nutrient medium, and really replenish things as the cells are growing and the meat is growing. So while I can't foresee uh, safety issues at this point, I, as we start scaling up, we have to deal with you know, some of the problems inherent to scale up as any industry would. And uh, we're going to, oh, w- the one thing I do want to mention, Sam, is when we are manufacturing and putting these products out on the market, the public can visit all our manufacturing plants and walk through, get tours, Kids from schools can see how meat's being made because all of this will be transparent Mm -hmm. because we do not have to shut off the processing from the meat production. So I feel like this is an education and people will see what they're getting. And uh, once they taste it, that's when they'll absolutely switch over. Yeah, well, again, this is fascinating to consider because I, I realize many of our listeners are probably thinking about this for the first time. This is just not because I'm virtually thinking about this for the first time. And the questions I'm asking you are really arising in my mind for the first time because it's just it's just not a uh, not something that anyone uh, knew was on the horizon in quite this way. Just to walk over that ground again so that nothing gets lost, I, we're coming up on the question of it being creepy, which I think bundles many intuitions that I think are, are disconfirmable, and we should just sort of knock them down as they arise. The sense that people have that this is unnatural, right? So you're, you're growing meat in a vat of some kind. And you know, so you know, we have you know, white lab-coated science producing meat. This does not seem like a natural process. What seems natural is to kill an animal. And so the, the sanitized, denatured aspect of this, I think, begins to worry, worry people, and they feel that there's some, something about this that may be less healthy 
because it's unnatural. But then it, if, if you just take a moment to consider the filthy chaos of an abattoir, I mean, the, the, the idea that there's anything about the process of how our meat is gathered, especially at the end, that is safeguarding the health of the human beings who will eat this meat, I mean, it's just the moment you look at some of those videos or read about the process or consider the level of E. coli or salmonella or other contamination, we, in a highly imperfect way, try to guard against. Or the, the prion diseases, you know, mad cow disease, uh, which uh, we don't even test for in certain circumstances. In fact, the USDA at one point made it illegal to test for because um, they didn't want to set a precedent requiring everyone to test for it. So this is a, I mean, the details just just scream health disaster in the making when you look at, at, at what the process actually is. And so that's what we are comparing the process you're describing to. You don't get a lot of um, a reassurance by the word uh, natural once you actually look at what's going on in uh, a factory farm. Are there any other safety variables that uh, you're aware of that you're, you need to overcome? Not at this time, because we've been steadily adding to our science and trying to make sure that the cells are moving into meat cells and behaving the way they should. But if at any point there is an issue related to safety, we're going to have to address that. But at this point, I can say completely with a clear idea of what we've done so far, we haven't seen any safety issues. And uh, forgive me I, if I, this just reveals my ignorance of the cell biology here, but so you, you have cells that are proliferating. In what sense are these not bovine cancer cells or porcine cancer cells? Is that a meaningful distinction in this context? Uh, yes, that's a very good question to ask because the cells we are talking about are naturally found in all the meat people are eating right now. So if these were cancer cells, people have been eating them for centuries in large quantities. And that's the distinction we'd like to draw. We are identifying the cells in the muscles of these animals that are specifically put in place there by, by the biology of the animal, essentially to help them repair their muscle if there is any injury during the process of their growth. So let's say if there is a cow that's got a muscle injury and that muscle has to be, to be repaired, these cells kick in and they'll go and repair that area and they're already in the muscle. Um, and all we're doing is we're identifying those cells because we know they are capable of renewing themselves into fresh and healthy muscle. Therefore, these are not cancer cells that we are taking out. These are cells that people are already eating in their meat every day. Right. And so now you are then developing a cell line of these cells and proliferating clones of, of a single cell? Or how or is there diversity in the, in the cells you use? How does that work? Yeah, so without going into a lot of details of the intellectual property behind it, because this is one of the hardest fields, and we are filing a tremendous amount of intellectual property, I can say in broad strokes that we have technologies that can do this without making a cell line. But also, we're not going to ignore the tremendous potentials of having the cells grow into a cell line that can be a source of the cells for a long time. Mm. So, you know, you're asking very good mm. questions. <laughs> so how do you get your cells at this point and what interaction with living animals is, is required to do that? And, and will the process change in the foreseeable future? 
Yes. So, so right now, from purely a scientific uh, perspective, we can get these cells from animals without requiring to harm them. We can take a biopsy from a muscle tissue and identify these cells. But on the same token, we could also get these from an animal that is already going through the current meat production process and is being slaughtered. And we can take small amount of cells and then store them and bank them so that we can then detach the process from going back to the animal. So we already have some cells banked that we are using and have been using in the last uh, you know, several months to make, make the, the meatballs that we've done. So we did not have to go back to the animal at all. Mm. But I can foresee a time in the future where people might say, could you make meat from this type of animal? Or this cow's beef in the world is known to be the best beef. Could you do that? I can foresee a, a time where we could go and take another biopsy from them. Or if they're in the meat processing, with the current meat production, we might be able to take a small sample and then use those cells so we don't have to go back to the animal again. And so I would imagine the, the, in terms of the aesthetics of it, the taste and, and the texture, there's probably a challenge in getting the mix of cells right, right? So that it's, because it's not just one type of cell that one is eating when one eats a steak or whatever it is. Well, how much of a, a challenge is that? I, I, I notice you've started with a, a meatball, which I guess is the equivalent of starting with, with ground beef. Is that, is, is culturing a steak that tastes and feels just like a steak a much harder challenge? Yes. So I think we are starting off with with the intention of getting on the market as soon as possible with products that people are, like Americans love, like hot dogs, burgers, meatballs, and uh, sausages. Because these are products that have a taste and texture that we could very easily and quickly emulate and get on the market. But when you start talking about a complex T-bone or a steak, it requires a combination of different cell types and, and marbling for us to be able to replicate that, that aesthetic feel. Mm. But absolutely, our goal is to make that as well. It'll just be the next line of products as we start improving on our technology on how to grow these cells together and pack them together in a way that nature would pack them. Um, we absolutely have our sights uh, set on a, a great stake. So, so I just want to track through the reasons why people said no here. So I think we've touched the, the safety issue sufficiently. There's the, there was an additional concern also by uh, now 24% of the people who said no that cultured meat will be expensive. Can you say something about the, the likely economy of scale here and where this would be headed in terms of the cost to consumers, but also say something about the external costs of our current production of meat in the factory farming way and you know how energy intensive is this process of, of culturing meat? Of course, yes. So uh, the cost of producing the, the, the naturally cultured meat we're talking about has plummeted over the last several years. We are now producing it for less than $40 a gram and we plan to reduce this to just a few cents per gram over the next five years. Now, while there may be a small price premium when we initially get onto the market, our goal is to reduce the cost enough that they are on par with conventional meats. And we believe this will absolutely happen because the current meat production techniques are inherently inefficient. Mm -hmm. And they use massive amounts of land as well as grain. And there is also the attendant environmental costs. But even without considering the environmental costs, it takes about 23 calories of grain to make one calorie of beef. And the, the process that we are modeling out now takes about three calories of energy input to make one calorie of beef. So 
we are hugely more efficient. But even if our estimates are off by twofold, threefold, fivefold, or sevenfold, we're still more efficient than production of beef. Mm. And in terms of talking about the other things that go into consideration of the cost, keep in mind that for the current meat production industry, the government subsidies, the tax breaks, the favorable policies, and other factors make the cost of conventional meat artificially low. And that costs are passed on to the consumers directly in a, in a way of government subsidies and budget deficits, which I believe are just not sustainable because as the population increases by 3 billion in the next 35 years, the demand for meat is doubling. Mm. And there is no government, Western government or Eastern government, that will be capable of continuing to subsidize at this massive level. And we feel like that's a combination of all of these factors will tip the point towards our meat actually being cheaper than conventional meat. It does seem that it's that is inevitable given how wasteful the quote natural process is. And uh, I mean, if people doubt whether costs can come down sufficiently in this area, you know, it's worth recalling that it used to cost three billion dollars to sequence a human genome. That's now down to under three thousand dollars. You have a million-fold improvement in the cost here, and that's over uh, scarcely 15 years. The final reason before we get to it being creepy uh, that people declined to switch to cultured meat in our poll was that they're vegetarian or vegan already and see no reason to do so. Um, Now, that obviously does not pose any concern from your point of view in terms of marketing a product, because this is really, these people are not in the market for meat of any kind, and it's, it's just a non-issue. But do you have anything to say about that? Because it's, it's a, um, I mean, I, I understand that certain people have decided that, you know, they, they've lost their taste for meat. They see no reason why they need to get their protein that way. But uh, I think there are probably many, many people, including myself, who uh, are vegetarian because of the, the ethical issues, but uh, haven't lost their taste for meat. And, and actually, many probably worry that on some level, meat is the best source of protein at the end of the day and um, uh, would be happy to switch to cultured meat at some point. You're absolutely right. If you, if you became a vegetarian or vegan for ethical reasons, but still like the taste of meat, then this is a product that would satisfy that craving for meat. But if you're someone who enjoys plants and is completely happy with that, we would encourage that, frankly, because it's also environmentally very sustainable. And uh, we've already had inquiries from a number of vegetarians and vegans asking us if we could consider this meat vegan or vegetarian because when it's on the shelves, it will not be coming from slaughter of an animal. Mm. And it might be a good poll for you to follow up and, and see if, if the definition of a vegetarian or vegan would change. Well, I think it, it would. For, for instance, I've heard from many vegans who call themselves bivalve vegans who eat oysters and mussels and clams because they, they think that the, the issue really is, you know, there's no plausible basis for consciousness there and therefore no b- basis for suffering. And uh, the reason why they're vegan in the first place is to mitigate animal suffering. So let's get to this, uh, the creep factor, because uh, honestly, this is something I'm sensitive to myself, and it, yet it is, when I try to analyze its basis, it's very strange. The, the, I mean, it, it seems to be an intuition that eating meat from an animal that has been slaughtered is 
natural and understandable and something we've always done. And while I don't like the details and don't feel like seeing the suffering and the blood and the guts and the filth myself, the details there are all, were always something that put me off. Uh, so they're not an attractive part of the process, but they are a, a natural and you know perennial part of the process. And the intuition seems to be that if the meat comes into being, bypassing all of that, there's something, the word that I think many people keep coming back to is creepy, that there's something, something um, uncanny about it. Uh, and I think people are, are predisposed to be uncomfortable with it. Uh, and now I, I fully expect this discomfort will be banished the moment we have a product that actually tastes good, that has been understood to be free of viruses and bacteria and antibiotics and other contaminants, and that didn't entail you know, a vast machinery of misery and death in order to bring it into being. But there is this, this, this knee-jerk reaction, which uh, it says, uh, ooh, I don't, I don't think I want to eat that. What, what are your thoughts on that? Can you, can you get underneath that at all yourself? Um, I, I, absolutely. I believe we'll get underneath it, and I understand the, the sentiments of what you're expressing, because up to this point in the history of our world, there just has not been an alternative to what people have been doing for centuries. And right now, people eat meat with their eyes squeezed shut because they don't want to think about the inefficiency or the filth or the cruelty. But once there is an alternative that is healthier, that doesn't include the pathogens and everything else we've talked about, that doesn't harm the animals, people will absolutely switch over. And when they're presented between two options, meat that is identical, but one that comes from a filthy farm and a slaughterhouse, or from a clean factory, we feel like people will absolutely switch over. And it might take you know, years and decades for this to completely be accepted by 100%. But one of the very unique things we've noticed in all our surveys, as well as from the reaction we've gotten, is the early adopter segment for any breakthrough technology to have a big chance on the market only requires to be about 5 to 7%. And our early adopter segment is just mind-bending. It's about 40% of the people are saying, we'll absolutely try it, we'll absolutely switch if it tastes identical to meat. And we feel like that's a very encouraging sign for us. And of course, there's going to be education. We have to get over this creep factor for the 25% of the audience you polled. And it's going to take time to get there. And we hope there'll be thousands of other companies like ours working globally that'll be doing this education effort. And in 50 years, I personally believe that the thought of slaughtering animals for meat will be laughable. Yeah, well, I share that intuition very strongly. And uh, this is one of those occasions where a technological breakthrough leads directly to an ethical one. And there are not many places where you see that, but uh, when you do, it really becomes, at a certain point, it would be unthinkable to go backward. And, you know, we're not there yet here, but it's very easy to foresee uh, that once this is just a fait accompli and you have a choice and it's an economically sustainable choice and it's a, an obviously healthy choice. And in that case, it would be very difficult to, to see someone arguing, no, no, actually, I prefer the meat that requires all of this suffering and death and pollution and inefficiency. 
it'll be like may seem like a an odd analogy, but we're sort of on the cusp of of a, a similar breakthrough with self-driving cars. Here, there's even a stronger argument. We're we're attached to our cars. We the aesthetics of of driving cars ourselves. There, this really is not a replacement for the fun of driving your car yourself. If in, if indeed you find that fun, this is a change that uh, will dictate a very different way of being in the world. Uh, so it's not the same kind of substitution you're offering. But at a certain point, once self-driving cars become obviously safe and obviously economical and not merely safe, but reliably safer than human drivers, so that, you know, apes behind the wheel in the U.S. reliably kill 30,000 people a year. If self-driving cars cut that down by a factor of 10 or 100, which is likely the case, then there'll be no place to stand to argue to say, no, no, actually, I feel like taking my neighbor's life in my hands every time I commute to work. Uh, I, I claim the right to kill some number of pedestrians because I love driving my car. You know, this, this again, will be something that will be forced upon us by a breakthrough in the technology, and to resist the technology at a certain point, you'll seem like a, a kind of psychopath. I think you're on the cusp of a similar breakthrough here. Absolutely, and, you know, we're, we're actually delighted with the response we've gotten in the last week, and uh, probably the fastest food tech or food um, YouTube video to go viral was ours. In three days, we had 7 million plus views, mm -hmm. and it continues to grow at a rate of a million and a half every day. And we know we've touched a chord globally. And I also want to put out a call to your audience that if there is someone that's deeply dedicated in making a difference in this area, whether they have a scientific background or a business background or just you know, a strategic background, I would really invite them to reach out to us because the last thing we want to do as a company is not make the connections we want to make early and, and think about this you know, five years from now. Uh, I also would hope that the meat industry sees that for them to continue to grow in a sustainable fashion, this would be a technology they could embrace instead of fighting like the traditional automotive industry did to the electric car mm -hmm. or they might do to the self-driving car. And we just hope that the conscious consumer that we're dealing with at this point is going to make this a reality because they are going to demand it and the producers and the manufacturers will base their future products based on the conscious consumer's demands. And, and that's the age we are in, which is why I strongly believe that this kind of transformation can happen in a matter of 5, 10, 15 years. Yeah, well, listen, it's, it's incredibly inspiring work you're doing. And um, you know, as, as we close here, to just tell people how they can get in touch with you. You have uh, memphismeets.com as your website, right? Yes, they could email founders at memphismeets.com, and it comes to us directly, and we have a team of people getting back. Uh, we might not be able to get back immediately, but we are getting back to every single one of them. And you're now on Twitter. What is your Twitter address? So the Twitter address for the company is Twitter slash Memphis Meets, and my personal one is Twitter slash Uma Valetti, U-M-A-V-A-L-E-T-I. Great. Well, listen, Uma, this has been uh, an education, and uh, hopefully it's the start of um, a really um, ubiquitous dialogue about uh, how we can push the ball into the end zone here, because I, clearly this is some formulation of this is um, where we need to get to for a variety of reasons, only some of which are ethical. There's every other reason to do this, too. So uh, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you, Sam. Delighted to be here. 
If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.